Welcome to GYN Corner with Dr. McDaniel, all things health-related for women. Hey, good afternoon. It's Sunday, uh, Sunday, April 14th, yeah, uh, or into the time and place. So I'm at home, it's the weekend, but I promised I would do the GYN Corner every day. Uh, for one year is my goal so I'm sticking to it doing my goal of course we didn't have office hours today so uh, I had to think of something that I want to share a tip or information or an anecdote um, I think yesterday well yesterday I broadcast from the horse farm Baymar Farms where my daughters take the horse riding lessons here in New Jersey and I added a little bit more to my story my background story of how I came to be here in New York for the office, New Jersey for my home life. Uh, of course, I did not look back to see where I left off. Uh, I think I left off somewhere talking about residency at Bellevue Hospital at NYU and we used to go out to Queens, the old Booth Memorial, which was awesome. And uh, we did about 80 hours a week. Uh, a lot of, uh, I guess the legislature, the government banned the 80 hours a week. They said it was abusive. People were too tired and were um, functioning as if they were drunk or something like that. I think those are the, the, the research that they were quoting. I don't really agree with that. I found over the years um, that what the initial premise was based on still rings true, that if you work for at least a straight 36-hour call, you get to follow uh, an illness, a disease process, through to pretty much to its um, solution. So you follow from the initial uh, evaluation when the patient comes into the emergency room or into labor and delivery. You get to follow the disease process, the problem that brought them there, what's currently going on, how the evaluation process occurs, and then what the solution is, the treatment and the management for that person. You don't get that continuity of care uh, and experience when you're on a shift for 12 hours. You come in, you evaluate the patient, get her set up, you still don't know what's going on, you come back, suddenly the answer's there and you're just finishing up so she can go home. Doesn't That doesn't bode well for learning. And uh, what I've seen over the years is that since the, I guess since the state or society has moved from 36 hour call to the 12 hour shifts, <coughs> the doctors aren't trained as well. They're not trained as well. They rely a lot on group management, group decision-making, group evaluation. And um, I think that also plays a part into why you have fewer doctors working on their own, working in private practice, working a, as a solo practitioner, working for themselves. And uh, you pretty much, we are now in the age of mass decision-making, mass medical management so you have huge multi-specialty groups where everyone's relying on each other's brain to fill in the holes and the gaps and you have uh, the majority of physicians are owned and um, employed by hospitals and insurance companies uh, when I entered residency in 1993 the entire OB-GYN department was uh, solo practicing private practitioners working for themselves in their own office that was in 1993. When I finished in 90, 90, 1997, it wasn't 100% anymore. It was about 
90 to 95%. Now, 2018, 2019, it's about the self-practicing private practitioner working on their own. We're less than 5% of the department. So it's a 180 degree turnabout. That's due to multiple factors, but I do think a large portion of that is people don't have, doctors don't have the experience. Majority of the experience that you're gonna get, the, the real bread and butter and in the trenches, deep medical exposure to a myriad of pathologies and uh, illness processes, that's not gonna happen when you're on your own in private practice. It's gonna happen during residency because you're at major hospital centers pulling in the most ill from all four corners of the world. Now we still see a lot in private practice on our own, but you don't see the barrage of illnesses. And um, I have found over the years that I rely a lot on that cornerstone, that basis from Bellevue Hospital to 26 years ago. That's my groundwork. I saw a lot in four years and I did a lot in four years. I don't do major surgeries anymore. I don't do deliveries anymore. But a bulk, the, uh, the large, 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 huge information that I pulled from was based from those four years. Now, of course, I've added on to that. Technology has improved a little bit. But women, our bodies haven't changed, the physiology hasn't changed, and the illnesses have not changed. Yeah, we added Zika. I think that's pretty much the only new disease process that has been introduced in the last several years. <clears throat> We've added new treatments and medications, but the, the problems that women present with, they're the same. So it's quite interesting having come from that pre, I think it was the Bell Commission, pre-Bell Commission era, uh, the Bell Commission had already taken effect for primary care doctors for internists um, when I entered in 93, but since GYN is a surgical specialty, we were exempted from that. So in 93, we were still doing 36-hour calls. That has changed. I don't have a, a lot of interaction with the residents right now, but I know it's changed. They're all on 12-hour shifts now. It's nicer for them. They have a life. and. Uh, Maybe since they're all drawing on each other's knowledge, group decision-making, group evaluation, it's maybe it's not as important now as it was back then. But uh, if there's something that comes along that uh, stymies a physician, you can always get help. You can contact the department of the chair at your hospital. You can contact other um, specialists that you know. Even those you don't know, you can go to uh, journals you can enter questions in online journals and uh, paper journals, so there's always a source of information. But I found that the, the illnesses, the disease processes really don't change. You have to stay on top of different ways to treat and manage, uh, improved ways to treat and manage, and you have to stay on top of the technology. Since I don't do surgeries anymore, the, I did a lot of laparoscopic, you know, keyhole surgery. Uh, now it's robotic, but robotic is laparoscopic with you sitting down. Uh, away from the body so it's not a huge difference it's a small difference but it's interesting how in just 20 to 25 short years things have really made a huge shift and whether it's for better or for worse only time will tell that's all retrospect or as we say in medicine the retrospectoscope um, tips I always like to end uh, the day's uh, vlog with something some anecdote something 
from uh, the office and uh, since we didn't see patients today of course I can't really think of anything off the top of my head because when I'm seeing patients I just think oh I'm gonna mention this patient today but so I just pulled back and I thought what comes up pretty often what comes up pretty often is um, <coughs> sorry patients asking do they need uh, an annual GYN exam do I, I heard we don't need our exams every three years we can do them every year or no we don't need them every year we can do them every three years that's true you can't like as I tell people yes it's true you can do your exams every three years instead of every year but that's nothing new this is a free country you've always had the option to do your exams every three years instead of once a year in fact you've had the option to do them never do them once every decade if you want it's a free country no one's forcing you to do anything so it's always it's interesting to me when people say I heard we can do our, our annuals of course, it's annuals and air quotes because it's not an annual if we're doing it every three years. We can do our annuals every three years. We don't have to do the PAPs every, every year. We can do the PAPs every three years. Again, you've always had the option to do the PAPs once every three or even five years if you want. I've had plenty of patients over the years who have chosen not to do their PAPs every year, to do them every three to five years. The difference is that the American College of OBGYN is giving the nod or the uh, the baney baney for people to do their PAPs every three years. You do have to think about why it used to be really push, push, push to do them every year versus every three years. The push to do them every year is because the pap smear is not a diagnostic test, it's a screening test. And by virtue of the fact that it's a screening test, that means it's taking the bulk of people in, the bulk of people it's gonna work for the masses so most of the time when the pap smear comes back normal that means it's normal most of the time when it comes back abnormal that means it's abnormal statistically if you're just looking at the pap the pap's correct about 65 percent of the time and it's incorrect about 35 percent of the time so 35 percent of the time when people are told their pap is normal it's not actually normal they're either the abnormal cells are still sitting on the cervix so they never made it to the slide to be evaluated or they've made it to the slide and they weren't identified and 35 percent of the time people are told their pap is abnormal ultimately it'll turn out it's not abnormal for pre-cancer cancer concerns it's abnormal for environmental issues so technically and realistically you're not supposed to come in for your pap when you're bleeding I get that all the time oh the cycle just started oh the cycle just finished it's only a little bit of blood okay so blood is blood is blood whether it's brown pink burgundy black <coughs> or flaming red it doesn't matter it's still blood and it's not so much the amount it's the fact that that red blood cells blood sorry I live right in front of the New Jersey train station because we strategically told we strategically found and bought our home because I wanted to walk out the backyard right there and be right at the New Jersey Transit so fortunately there's a train coming now uh, I'll take a pause when they start to blow in the horn it's once an hour on the weekend it's not an issue it's really nice out today too today it's nice like in the 70s or so some on our balcony so um, the issue is that red blood cells, white blood cells, those are all in, an, that's what we call an inflammatory environment. So it can potentially cause inflammation of the cervical cells and the cervical cells can look irregular or abnormal for non-malignant, non-pre-malignant changes. So realistically, yeah, there's a lot of people who do the paps now when there's bleeding or if you have an infection, a discharge, an irritation, blah, blah. They'll do them because a lot of the time 
because we do the liquid pap smears, it might spin off a lot of that debris and uh, the cells may be unaffected. We don't know how much inflammation has occurred, how long the, the contact has been and what the outcome is going to be. Me, uh, I am very much a stickler. I do standard of care for everything and I am very old fashioned. Any kind of bleeding, I'm not going to do the pap. Because if the pap comes back abnormal, then the question is, ew, uh, are you in the, the, were you really normal, but the, the bleeding caused some irregularity, now it's misconstrued. So you know what, get rid of the questions, just come in with the normal, or as I like to tell the patients, a squeaky clean vagina cervix, and then we don't have any questions, any issues. If it comes back abnormal, we'll have to believe it, sort it out. So the traditional pap smear, which is just looking at the, the cervical cells on the microscopic slide, that's correct about 65% of the time. So 65% of the time, when your pap comes back normal or abnormal, that's really the case. Now that the recommendation, because we're doing the liquid pap smears, now the recommendation is for everyone who's 30 years old and over to add the viral culture, the HPV. Adding the HPV, if it agrees with the cells, increases that believability rate. So the believability rate was 65% without the HPV. If the HPV correlates with the cells, then that increases from 65 up to 85, even 95% in some of the studies. So if the pap cells look normal, and the HPV culture's negative for infection, that increases the believability rate from 65 up to 85, 95%, that if it says it's normal or abnormal, that's really the case. However, if they don't agree, cells look normal, but the virus is present, then that drops that believability rate again back to that 65%. Another train, of course, so one moment. There it is. We wanted a house that was walking distance to the New Jersey Transit Station and we were very pleased to get this house because it's right in front of the station. I walk, whether it's a three feet of snow, snowstorm, blizzard, or it's a, a floods, doesn't matter. As long as the trains are running, I'm good. I just walk out the back door, back door. I walk out our balcony, out the back fence, and I'm in the parking lot for the train station to New York City and it's a direct shot for me. Our trains are never crazy crowded unless it's St. Patrick's Day. Uh, and I get on the train, it takes me directly from our home straight to Penn Station in New York City and then right back, so it's awesome. Um, anyways, as I was saying, so the pap smears are screening test. It's correct most of the time, not all of the time. And um, the rationale for saying so the rationale for saying you should do the pap every year is because cream rises to the top so with regularity if someone happened to have a false normal so the pap came back normal but it there really are abnormal cells we're just unbeknownst to us it will eventually sort out over the with the next pap or the pap after that the rationale for extending it wasn't based on improving the patient's health status it was based on public public health public health is a balance of how much the public spends and how much people suffer um, based on the changes that we make right 
So will there be a striking increase rate in cervical cancer if we stretch out the screening or will it be about the same? Now it doesn't take into account human nature of course. So the catch was we can the disease process for cervical cancer, which is what the PAP is screening for, the disease process for cervical cancer is on average about one to three years to go from a normal cervix to severe pre-cancer or very early cancer. One to three years, even one to five years in, for the majority of, of strains of HPV and in this society. So the research showed that you can essentially get a false normal here and there and get pretty much the same rates of disease detection doing the PAPs every three years as you would doing them every year. The goal is not to catch women if they have early precancerous changes. The goal is to catch them if they have severe precancerous changes so that we can treat them before they go all the way to cervical cancer. Now it does not take human nature into those statistics because human nature says, oh, if you tell me to do something every year, that sounds pretty important. I might do it every two to three years. If you tell me to do something every three years, it doesn't sound so important anymore. So I might do it every three to five years. And that's where you will run into problems. So I tell women who ask me that, yes, you can do them every three years if you want. You can do the annuals with the PAP every three years if you want. The catches, that's going to work for most people. It's not going to work for everyone. So as I like to say, that the public health announcements and recommendations, they are looking at the forest and they care about the forest and how much money is spent to keep the forest doing well. They're not looking at the trees. So you as an individual should be looking at the trees. You're the tree. So that's what's most important. That's our Yorkie. My youngest son just let her outside to bark because that's what she likes to do is bark. She's a nut job. Let me find her. Baby. I don't know if you could see her because of the way this camera is. Where's baby? Baby. Okay, that's baby. Her name's baby. She's a little under five pounds. And she's four years old. Okay, so that's the... I don't know if I should call this the GYN rant corner at the end of the vlogs or not what the story is. I was feel like I'm ranting at the end, start getting on my soapbox. Uh, but I hope that was helpful for anyone who's uh, come across that information. Uh, this is Dr. McDaniel, it's Sunday, April 14th. I'm going to vlog every day. That's my goal, as long as I can stand on two feet. <clears throat> I'll be vlogging every day, including the weekends. And uh, tomorrow's Monday, so until then, have a good rest of the weekend, bye. for joining Dr. McDaniel at GYN Corner, all things health related for women. Please subscribe and join us again soon for another episode.